I trust everybody brought a Bible tonight or you have the ability to read off a screen. It's good to bring your Bible. If you got one at home, bring it next time because it's really good to see it in your own Bible. It's good to go back home and read what you already read. Um, we don't, like I've said before, we don't have time to read every single verse that's, that's before and after um, while we're here in this short period of time. So I encourage you to go home and, and restudy what you learned tonight. See for yourself. Read it for yourself. Study it for yourself and let God teach you even more. And so we're going to start in Acts chapter 3 where we left off last week. We're going through the book of Acts and, and uh, getting excited about what the church looked like then and what it can look like now. It won't look exactly the same, but there's some elements that remain the same. One of the things that is constant is the fact that the same Holy Spirit they had then is the Holy Spirit we have now. The Holy Spirit is Lord of the church. Jesus is head of the church, right? But the Holy Spirit's the one that runs the church, it seems. It's the Holy Spirit that leads the church. And Jesus, as the head, I mean, this is, we, we know that the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus are one. And so we, we see it throughout the scripture that they are constantly being led, being empowered, being driven by the Holy Spirit. It's a wonderful thing. Maybe driven's not the word because usually when the scripture uses driven, it's not in a good sense. But they are being led, they're being compelled by the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 3, last week we, we read about this, this big miracle that took place right in front of the temple. I mentioned that although Jerusalem was the place where they were kind of wanted men, Jerusalem was the place where it was most dangerous, so far they've had no big uh, conflict with the uh, religious leaders of Jerusalem. So far there hasn't been a big uh, encounter that's caused problems. That all changed in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John are just on their way to the temple. They've got no intention to cause trouble. They're just on their way. Just heading into the temple, and they see a guy, and he's, he's there. He's been lame since birth. And they speak to him, and he says, you know, friends, do you have any money for me? Do you have alms for me? And Peter looks at him. He says, look on us. Silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. The man gets up, Peter grabs him, hauls him to his feet, and his, immediately his legs are filled with strength. The man can walk. He's walking and leaping and praising God. Well, they end up in the portico of Solomon. That's, that's a series of uh, colonnades of pillars outside the temple, sort of on temple grounds, but not the inner temple. And so in that little area, all of a sudden, this guy that's been healed is drawing a crowd. The crowds are a good thing when you're preaching the gospel. I mean, you want a crowd. You don't want to just be preaching the gospel to, to you know, a corner of walls. You want to be preaching to people, you know? So when this guy drew a crowd, that was a good thing. Peter started to preach. But part of the crowd that got drawn were some folks that weren't too happy about what he was doing. In Acts chapter 3, it says this. As Peter begins to uh, explain what happened, they asked him, what authority he did this in. They asked him, how did this man become healed? And it says that he was healed in the name of Jesus. It says in verse 16, it says that it's on the basis of faith in his name. It is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. He's talking about the fact that they crucified Jesus. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return. 
so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he might send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you. Now, he, we, we read Christ in our Bible, but it, if you're standing there at that moment with all those Jewish people, that word is Messiah. Christ is simply the Greek word for Messiah. Of course, we know that in that word is, is, is you know, the meaning of, of it being the anointed one and his anointing. But in reality, when, when Peter is talking to a bunch of Jewish people, he's saying God's going to send the Messiah again. Jesus came as the Messiah. He was rejected, but he's coming back again. He says, repent and return that times of refreshing may come from the presence of God. Like we said on that first message that Peter preached, he seems to be preaching very similar message every time he gets a chance. But like we said before, you'd think when Jesus sends his church in power back to the city that crucified him. He's either going to say, you know, be political, don't be mean, just don't say anything and hide, or he's going to tell him to come straight out and uh, tell him that God's going to burn him up, God's going to cause him trouble because of what they did, that God's going to take revenge on them. But instead, what God says is even though you crucified Jesus, repent and return, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of God. What God's offering them, even though they were complicit in the death of Jesus, even though they yelled at Pontius Pilate, said, let his blood be on our heads and our children's heads. Peter stands up on that first day and says, this promise is for you and your children. See, they brought judgment on them and their children, but God offered forgiveness to them and their children. What a wonderful thing. Peter's preaching this message again. He's not going easy on them. He said, you killed them, but here's the deal. Repent and return. Times of refreshing will come from the presence of God, and he will send Jesus, who has been appointed to you, the Messiah, whom heaven must receive, it says in verse 21, until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his prophets from ancient time. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed the prophet will be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who've spoken from Samuel and all his ancestors onward also announce these days. He's telling them that this isn't something that's come by surprise. God has been telling you he's sending somebody. For hundreds and hundreds of years, he's been preparing you for this. And that time is now. They're living in the days of prophecy. They're living in the days of fulfillment. In verse 25, he says, It's you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. What a message that he's preaching. All of these years, guys, everything, I mean, these are people that when they were kids, from the moment they could learn to speak, they were taught the Messiah is coming. They all kind of got to the point where they got used to hearing it and not expecting it. Some of you may be at that point right now when we talk about the second coming of Jesus. You might have heard it so much you don't really believe it anymore. You might have heard it so much you don't really expect it anymore. Of course, we know I don't want you to be one of those flakes that, you know, just, just stalks up on on, on, you know, enough food to last for 10 years and, and uh, you know, machine guns and everything. I mean, if you want one and you've got a legal permit, go for it. But, you know, I, I'm, maybe your reasoning would be different. 
I'm not telling you to be one of those flakes that says, I know the exact day that he's coming, but there should be an expectancy. What had happened to these people is they've been taught for a very long time that the Messiah is coming. But they stopped believing it. They stopped expecting it. He says, he came. You missed it. He came, but he's coming back again. And here's the thing. He says, I want you all to turn from your wicked ways. That's what Jesus came to tell you. But in chapter 4, as they were speaking to the temple, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed (laughs) because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Let me give you a little background. There's this word that pops up, the Sadducees. Anybody real familiar with the Sadducees? We used to sing this song when we were little kids. And I had, like I said before, like these songs that we sing as adults make a lot more sense, sense than the songs we sang as kids. Most of the songs I had no clue what we were talking about. Deep and wide, there's a fountain flowing deep and wide. I didn't know what that meant. Father Abraham has many sons. Many sons have Father Abraham. I didn't know what that meant. You know, there were so many things that I had no clue what they meant. And we sang a song, um, we sang a song similar to this, which talked about the, it says, I don't want to be a Pharisee because they're not fair, you see. I don't want to be a Sadducee because they're so sad, you see. And that was my, my history on the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So Sadducees must have just been sad people. But in reality, you see, we talk about the Pharisees a lot in church. I mean, in Christianity, the Pharisees are kind of like the bad guys in the Jesus story. It's only because they're mentioned so often. But you know, I'd rather have a Pharisee than a Sadducee. The Sadducees were just as bad as the Pharisees, but they were worse. Because the Sadducees didn't believe in any supernatural stuff. They were very religious, but no power behind it. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe that there'd ever be a resurrection from the dead. Once you're dead, you're dirt, that's it. These guys were the privileged folks. These were the rich guys. These guys were the ones with political connections. These were the guys that were in the best with the Romans. Did you know that the Romans had the final say on who would be high priest? So most of the time, the high priest was a Sadducee. They were the ones that were really the majority of the Sanhedrin. Because what happened was, before the Romans were ruling this area, the Greeks were ruling this area. More more specifically, the Seleucids, or you can pronounce it the Seleucids, the guys that came after Antiochus, uh, you know, or Antiochus was one of them. And they had several rulers that kind of reigned over this region. And, uh, and the Greeks said, well, here's what you can do. Uh, you can't have a king. You can't have a ruler because we're your ruler. But what you can have is a council, a Sanhedrin, and you'll take care of internal matters. And so the Sanhedrin was based most of religious leaders, and the Sadducees were the ones that would play along to get along. These guys had political connections. They were really interested in maintaining the status quo. Don't mess with us. So you can understand why they didn't like Jesus. Jesus really messed with the status quo. See, at least the Pharisees believed in the supernatural. They at least believed the Bible. I mean, the, the, the Sadducees said they did, but there was no reality in it. They were basically just religious political folk. We know a few of those today. These are the guys that were part of the denomination that basically says they believe all these things, but a long, a long time ago, they stopped believing pretty much everything they say they believe. They no longer really believe. There's a, they don't believe there's a resurrection. They don't believe that God really does much in the affairs of men. These guys were politically connected, 
And they ran most of the Sanhedrin, which was the council. Now, there were some Pharisees that were also on the council, but they were the minority. And there's a good chance that the high priest himself was the Sadducee. So when the Sadduc- one of the things that the Pharisees and the Sadducees always fought about was the fact that there'd be a resurrection from the dead. In other words, when you die, something's after that. Now, we think that's just such a basic thing. How could you say you believed in the Bible or what they had, the Torah at the time? How could you say you believed in that and not believe that there was a resurrection afterwards, that, that there was something after this life? But they didn't. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees would also often get in fights over that. And uh, so all of a sudden, Peter and John are talking about the resurrection from the dead. They're not only just talking that Jesus was resurrected, but they're saying we're all going to be resurrected through Jesus. So the Sadducees have to shut that down. They get real upset. They come. They're greatly disturbed because they're teaching the people the resurrection through Jesus. You understand what they have at stake here? They don't want anyone to mess with the thing, way things are. Because right now, the Romans are happy, we're happy. All of a sudden, these two guys start causing trouble because there's a guy that got healed, and we'd love to hide the evidence, but he's walking around. So that's a problem. Then they're talking about this Jesus, and they're throwing words like Messiah around. Now, to you and me, Messiah is kind of a spiritual term. But to the people at the time, the Messiah was the guy that was going to overthrow the oppressors. Do not throw a word like Messiah around. We just got everything settled. Then they're talking about the resurrection. So you guys, you can understand, they're really, it says here, greatly disturbed. Enough that they're a little undignified. They want to come and shut it down. They laid hands on them. Now, we're spiritual people. To us, laid hands is one of the nicest things you could ever do. You're feeling sick? Let me lay hands on you. This is a very nice way to say they roughed them up a little bit. They grabbed them. You don't want to get hands laid on you like this. <laughs> Scripture says don't lay hands on anyone suddenly. It's not talking about this. It means don't put anyone to men- into ministry before they're ready. But, you know, this is a sudden laying on of hands. It's not a friendly one. And they put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed... And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. You guys read the, the scripture I just read. Now, there's probably some stuff they said that didn't get written down, I'm sure, because it says both Peter and John were testifying together. So not everything got written down, but I can't imagine this was an incredibly long sermon. Doesn't seem like they had a lot of time to work with. But in that period of time, they preached the pure gospel of Jesus Christ with the sign and a wonder confirming the word And 5,000 men, who knows if that includes their families, 5,000 guys got born again. Wonderful. Here's what it says. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. So these are all the religious so-and-sos. These are the big shots. These are the members of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was laid out like this. It was laid out in basically a semicircle. And so that everybody was always looking at one another. That caused a bit of problems. Later on in the book of Acts, we're going to read about when Paul was brought before the Sanhedrin. And he got a little, he got a little bit wisecracking. They were, they were really mad at Paul for what he was preaching. And uh, so this is a spoiler alert. We'll read this later, but I trust you guys to keep it secret. So Paul, 
Paul is, is, is testifying in front of the Sanhedrin. It's not really going his way. And all of a sudden he says, the reason I'm here is because of the resurrection. Well, he drops that little bomb, and all these people that are looking at one another are Pharisees and Sadducees. And when he says, I'm here because of the resurrection, all of a sudden, Paul's not important. All of a sudden, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are at each other's throats because this is the one issue they really can't agree on. So he kind of slips out the back. The Roman soldier takes him away, and there's a little riot over this. But on the next day, it says their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together. And it says in, in verse 6, Annas, the high priest, was there, Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. Now, for you Bible scholars in the crowd, and I'm sure there's like tons of you, for you Bible scholars, you might be, be getting a red flag and saying, wasn't Caiaphas the high priest? Because we know Caiaphas was the high priest only a few weeks earlier when Jesus was crucified. So why does it say Annas? Well, Annas was Caiaphas' father-in-law. Anybody have one of those? You got two different types of father-in-laws. You got a you got an easygoing father-in-law, and you got a father-in-law that tries to run your life. Caiaphas had the one, the latter. He had the one that tried to run his life. Annas was a very famous high priest. So even when Caiaphas, his son-in-law, took over, Annas basically was the guy pulling the strings. So much so that when Luke writes this down, he calls Annas the high priest. You ever had, ever had a boss that kind of turns the reins over and never really leaves? This is what happened here. Annas is the elder. He's, he's not officially the high priest, but he might as well be. They still call him high priest because he was the high priest, and he's still sort of running the show. There's a guy named John. Now, John, in one of the codexes that we have, a codex is, a, is an original document where the scriptures were translated from. One of the codexes actually calls him Jonathan, and this is probably right because Annas had a son named Jonathan who was high priest after Caiaphas. So there's likely that this is Caiaphas and Jonathan, his son-in-law, his son, and you know, a guy named Alexander. These are all of high priestly descent. They're all here in the meeting. Apparently, this is an important meeting you don't know how hard it is to get people to a meeting. Apparently, these guys can be gathered when it's something this urgent. Guy, these guys are all at the Sanhedrin, and they're going to make Peter and John stand in the middle of this semicircle and face them. And they're going to be grilled and interrogated. Does everybody remember what they're being interrogated for? A guy got healed. What a terrible crime. What a horrible thing to do. A guy that was lame since he was born can now walk. We must investigate. Of course, it's not just what they did, it's what they said. See, tonight we're going to talk a little bit about your critics and how, to, how we really should feel about that. You will have critics. The question is, do you fear them more than you fear God? That's the real question. Now, fear is not, fear to us has one meaning and it means to just be scared of somebody. But in the Bible, fear does have a, a sense of awe and reverence, but it also means that that's the, that's the one that matters to you. That's the, pers- that's the opinion that matters to you. That's the one you honor. They're the one you're trying to please. So in the scripture, when it says we fear God, it says, it says submit to one another in the fear of Christ. That means that I'm going to submit to you. You're going to submit to me. We're going to treat each other well because we reverence and respect God because we want to please him above all things. I'm going to treat you well out of fear of Christ. The Bible says that fear of man is a snare. He's not talking about men like males. He's talking about humans. The fear of other people 
is a snare. It will destroy and run your life. If you let other people call the shots, if you let the fear of what they'll say or what they'll do or what they'll think about you, that'll run your life. If you want to fit in, you signed up to the wrong club. Paul says this in Galatians. He says, if we had been trying to please people, we could not be called bondservants of Jesus Christ. Which means you can't have it both ways. I know we'd all like it both ways, wouldn't we? We'd love to just be pleasing God and everybody recognize that and love us for it and just say, you're wonderful people. You're just great. I just, I mean, ah. and you know, God is happy. People are happy. And we live this charmed life where unicorns and rainbows surround us at all times and everybody thinks we're the best. That's not going to happen. That's a fantasy. You're going to have people that disagree with you. You're going to have people that don't like you. You're going to have people that you make upset. Not because you're a jerk, but simply because you stand up for Jesus. Here's what it says. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or what name have you done this? Now to them, what that meant was, if you're going to go around preaching, if you're going around doing miracles, first of all, that power came from somewhere. But also, what name are you doing this? So who authorized you to do these things? Now, if a guy got healed, and it's an undeniable miracle, couldn't happen any other way, you can't just massage this guy's legs and all of a sudden he can walk. He's never been able to walk. So you'd think that'd be your first clue that, mm, I don't know, something good's happening here, but not for them. What power, what name did you do this in? Now, what they're asking is, who told you you could do this? And Peter takes off on this point. He takes off because they mentioned that word again. There's that word, the name. And he, he's got a whole sermon. He just finished preaching. He's ready to fire it up again about the name. You want to know about the name? You want to know the name that we're empowered with? You want to know the name that sent us? He says this in verse 9, he's, or verse 8, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's a key there, guys. Because this guy did not have the oratory skill. He didn't have the speaking skills. He didn't have the knowledge, the wisdom to pull this kind of message off. He's standing in the hotbed. These people have been trained. They're trained lawyers. They're trained scribes. These guys know how to operate in the Sanhedrin. He's in the snake pit. This is like standing before the Supreme Court. Did you know in every village they'd have rulers of the synagogue and minor issues would be decided and judged there? But when you got brought in front of these guys, it's the Supreme Court. Can you imagine if one of you were just thrown like the same day, you didn't have any warning, you had one night's sleep, and you're in front of the Supreme Court? That's all you have. Can you imagine if you, would you feel super prepared for that kind of thing? Would you say, oh, no problem. I talk to people all the time. I can talk to the Supreme Court. Here's the interesting thing. Jesus actually prepared them for this. He told them, I'm sending you out. And he said this more than once. But there's a place in Matthew where he says, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. And he says, people will betray you. He says, people are going to throw you in prison just for preaching my name. And he says this. He says, make up your mind beforehand not to prepare a defense for yourself. For in that hour, I'll give you the words to say. In another place, in the same telling of, the same, of what he said there, another angle from it in one of the other gospels, it says, this will lead an, 
to an opportunity. It says they'll put you in front of their courts. This will lead as an opportunity for your witness, for your testimony. That's the greatest thing. You see, if we got thrown in front of a court, we'd, we'd be ticked off. We'd be sad. We'd be frustrated. We'd be upset. We'd be afraid. But he tells them, they're going to put you in front of their courts. He says, this is wonderful. It gives you a chance to preach. I mean, when else do you have a bunch of people that can't leave their seat and have to listen to you? All of a sudden, all these religious folk have to listen to what you have to say. Brilliant. Let them bring us before their courts. So Peter, remember what Jesus told him. He said, don't you worry about what you have to say. I'll give you the words at the right time. Did you know God has the right words for your critics? The Lord knows what you need to say. Very easy to fly off the handle, get hot under the collar and just say, I'm I'm ticked, I'm mad, I'm going to tell them off. You can do it your way, but expect your own results. If you want to do it God's way, let him give you the words. He's got the words that silences the critics. Watch what he says. Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name. Now, that's not a small statement. He just dropped two bombs on him. He said, you crucified him, and God raised him from the dead. What are you going to do with that little bit? And that's, that's a big statement right there. A man got up from the dead. God raised him from the dead. By this name, this man stands before you in good health. Praise God. And he says, he is the stone. Now he's quoting from Old Testament prophets. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. What he's quoting is a prophecy that said the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now he makes it personal. He says, you're the chief builders. You're the guys that run the nation. You're the guys that are making all the big decisions. This prophecy is talking about you. You rejected him. You killed him. But he's now become the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. What a statement. There is no other name that can save you. There is no other human. There is no other God. There is no one else that can save. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that which has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. So they're seeing these guys, and they go, these guys didn't go to school. They're a bunch of trained PhDs. Now, they didn't have PhDs back then, but imagine, basically PhDs here. They've been trained till it's just, you, know, you ever met somebody who was just educated too much? You know what I'm talking about? They just, there was a point where they just should have gone and done something with their life, but they just kept going to school. And, and that's like their identity, Not what they did with the education, but the fact that they have it, and they have it in spades. These are those guys. They don't want anybody coming here and messing up the system. When you're at the top, you don't want anybody messing with the status quo, because the status quo has you at the top. I don't 
want this, these young punks coming in and messing up our cushy system. And they're, they're the ones that have been trained in how to speak, trained in how to use the Old Testament prophets, trained in how to uh, um, argue the law and, and argue the scriptures. And all of a sudden, these uneducated hicks, like we said last week, one of the things that they noticed about these guys, even at the trial of Jesus, was that they had a Galilean accent. That might not mean anything to you, but to them, that was a red hick flag waving for all to see. A Galilean accent. Well, gosh. Golly. I don't know. You know, obviously that's not what a Galilean sounded like, but you can imagine to them. And they hear this, this Galilean fisherman get up, and all of a sudden, he is crafting a perfect argument that not only has fancy, it's not exactly fancy words, but it's the right words, and there's power behind it. It's hitting them. As this is happening, I mean, if he's filled with the Holy Spirit, I guarantee there's power in the words he's saying. I guarantee the Holy Spirit's on those words. I guarantee the Holy Spirit is poking them while they hear it. And they recognize these are uneducated men, untrained, and they're amazed. And they began, look at that, since they began to recognize, that's important. They began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. In verse 14, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say. In reply, these are professional speakers, professional lawyers, professional scribes, professional preachers, professional politicians, and none of them have anything to say in reply. Why? Because two things form together to shut their mouths, the wisdom of God spoken and the wisdom of God revealed through this man that had been healed. We've got critics, but I believe that the Holy Spirit can silence the critics. What will silence your critics? First of all, you're not bowing down to them. There's always going to be critics. Now, you know the end of the story here, it doesn't say they got silenced and just gave up. It made them, wor- it made them more mad. And we like to think the story ends here. They're silenced and go, very well, on your way. But the truth was, a fight was picked this day that didn't end. And so, we say, you know, hey, you telling me all right, my, the critics can be silenced and then everything will be okay? That's not what I said. Silence the critics. Often the critics are even more mad. Smart people don't like to be shut up. <laughs> so here's what happens. It says, seeing the man who was healed standing next to them, they had nothing to say in reply. You know, the word that we translate as signs in the Bible, when it says Jesus did many signs and wonders, the word that we translate signs can also be uh, translated as an attesting miracle, which means it's a miracle that backs up what you just said. God does these all the time. I believe the words that you have to say, when you let the Holy Spirit fill you up, when you rely on him, The words that you have to say in response, instead of getting mad, instead of wanting revenge, instead of trying to be clever, instead of trying to be tricky, instead of trying to be fancy, if you'll just let the Holy Spirit speak, 
The words that you say will have far more impact than anything you ever could have said before. Not only that, but what God says, he backs up. I believe that he's going to do things in our age, in our time, that the world will see and have no response for. They'll all be able to say, obviously something's happening. That doesn't mean they'll just all say, well, let's all join hands and sing. They might still be mad, but it'll shut them up. What shuts the critics up is not you getting on a message board and being petulant and proving how fancy you can, you can type. Any argument on a message board is already pretty much a losing argument. I'm sorry. I believe that we should engage the world, and I'm not trying to tell you to hide, but I'm just telling you generally anonymous idiots are on the Internet putting comments on a CNN post. Yeah, it's not your place. To sh- That's probably not the best place for you to share the gospel. If God tells you to, you go for it. But where the world really needs you is to get out where you're not so anonymous and take a stand. It's not going to be won by our fancy words or the arguments we learned. I don't believe there's anything wrong with you going out and giving Josh McDowell's evidence that demands a verdict and reading about the evidence that backs up the historical accuracy of the Bible. That's probably a good thing. But that's not what's going to win it for you. The arguments of men, God says he's made them foolishness. He's taking the foolish of the world the weak, the not-so-noble, the not-so-mighty. He's taken them to confound the wise. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 1, if you can go home and read that whole chapter, it'll, it'll say this better than I ever could. The Apostle Paul said to them, he said, I didn't come to you with fancy words. I didn't come with you cle- with cleverness of speech. I came and I preached Christ and him crucified. And I preached it with a demonstration of the power of God and of the Spirit. And here, what shut them up was the fact that a miracle had taken place. They couldn't deny. Isn't it wonderful to see God do undeniable miracles? Couldn't deny it. Couldn't figure it out. Verse 15. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place to them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. You know, they they would deny it if they could, but the word had already spread. A miracle took place. We can't deny it. But so that it will not spread any further, so these miracles don't keep breaking out, so that the rumors and the word of the, 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 the... The story of this happening won't spread any further. Let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. See, right now they sound about like the UN, don't they? You've made us so mad, we are crafting a strongly worded warning to you. Better not speak again, you're being warned. They summoned them. They commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. Isn't that a great statement? He's basically saying, okay, you decide whether we are going to stand here and be right in front of you or be right in front of God. Whether we're going to please you or please God, you decide what's better with that. You be the judge of that. Then he says this, 
for we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, (laughs) they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them. Believe me, if they could have done this in secret, they would have done it. But there's already a crowd that saw a miracle, and they can't deny it. So they let them go on account, here's what it says, on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. In other words, they wanted, they wanted to punish these guys. They wanted to throw them in prison. They wanted to kill them. But too many people saw a miracle. Couldn't deny it. You're going to get critics. You're going to have people that, I mean, come on. Jesus came to, to set the world on fire. I mean, he, he came to change everything. You can't come into the world and say, hey, everything's got to change and expect that people are going to be cool with that. There's going to be some that, that say, thank God, something needs to change. There are going to be people that receive Jesus like those 5,000 with an open heart. But a lot of times you notice there's, a, there's members of the Sanhedrin I don't know how many were there, but there's a lot less than 5,000. But for many of us, we could have 5,000 people on our side, but if there were 15 that were against us, it'd be enough to, to stop us from saying anything else. So many of us are so afraid, so afraid of what people might say. We're afraid of being disliked. We're afraid of being opposed. But that fear is a snare. Get over the fear of people. Even people that have more authority, more clout, more swing than you. Get over your fear. Because here's the question you've got to ask. Would I rather fear them or would I rather fear God? Is it more important for me to please people or is it more important for me to please God? That's a question you've got to ask yourself every day you're alive. Whose opinion do I care about? If we were to be honest... There's a lot of points in our life where people's opinion matters a lot more than God's opinion. Because we say, well, God is all forgiving. He's loving. But people aren't. But I want to ask you, who's bigger in your life? Who do you fear? Who do you value? Who do you love? Because we will be ineffective, totally neutered and stripped of all of our power if we let people's opinions run the show. As a church, as an individual, you can't do anything for the kingdom of God if you're afraid of people. If you're afraid of what society will think, afraid of what Hollywood thinks, if you're afraid of what your neighbors down the street think, if you're afraid of people's opinions, you'll be handcuffed. But I urge you today, understand that if you please God, nothing else matters. And there'll be plenty of people that come along, guys. 5,000. You see, even now when we're reading it, I feel like more focused on the Sanhedrin than the 5,000 people that got born again. You know, as a pastor, do you know how many times you walk out on the stage and you notice who's not there instead of the people that are? It's something you got to get over. We're drawn. I mean, somebody can give us 10 compliments and one person says something even on the edge of it an insult, and that's all you think about. It's all that dominates your mind. You got to get over that. Your identity must be found in what the Lord says about you, who he's made you to be in his name, because that's all that's really going to count in the end. It does not matter what people think. It only matters what God thinks. And so I go, we got to go through life saying, he's the one I want to please. If you're displeased with my actions, 
I'm sorry. I feel for you. I'm not trying to offend you. But you're not the one I'm trying to please. All they could do was threaten him. Now, later they did throw him in jail for a while. Later they did beat him up a bit. Later, some of them were even killed. But Jesus said something interesting. You know what I quoted when he told them this was going to happen? He ends that little statement with this, with this sentence. He says, some of you they'll put to death. And then he says this, and this sticks with me. But they will not be able to harm a hair on your head. Now, those two thoughts don't seem to go together. Hang on. Are they going to put me to death or are they not going to harm a hair on my head? Because you can't have both. Are you saying they're going to put me to death in such a way that my hair doesn't get messed up? Is that what you're saying? Because I really don't care about that. The guillotine can come down cleanly. My hair is fine. And I'm still without a head. I don't want that. What he's saying is they can't touch what matters. They can't touch what matters. You may live in this body. That's not who you are. They can't touch what matters. And I'll say this on top of that. If you'll put your faith in God, and you know the mission he sent you on, I think the evidence in the scripture is those that he called, they finished their mission. Now, every one of us has a different mission. Some may be way longer than others. Jesus said to them, if John lives till I come back, what does it matter to you? I don't believe that there's one number, one age that we all are supposed to get to. I believe different, different people finish at different times. But I do believe if you'll trust God, he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. The Apostle Paul talked about it so many times. He said, we were so close to death, but we began to trust in God who raises the dead. He said, we had a sentence of death on us and in us, but he delivered us and he will deliver us and he will yet deliver us. And what he's saying there is this. You can't kill me till I'm done. When I'm done, go ahead. You can't harm a hair on my head. Paul said to Timothy, I fought the good fight. I finished my race. There's a crown laid up for me. In another place he said, I'm ready, I'm prepared to be poured out like a drink offering. When he said that, it wasn't much longer until he went with those soldiers outside the wall. He knelt down. He stuck his head on a block. And with one sword chop, they ended his physical life. But they were not able to harm a hair on his head. John, right here he's a young man. But by the time he wrote the book of Revelation, he was a very old man. And the reason he came to be on that rock was that, as church history tells us, and it's a reliable source. You know, I don't just throw this out. This is not just urban legend stuff. There's a lot of urban legends in church history, believe me. Saint this what, and this saint this person, there's a lot of just urban legends, fantasy tales. But we have from contemporaries of John, the, the guys that were under him that trained, they wrote about some of the things that happened to him. And by the time that John was an old man, he, his headquarters were in Ephesus. And it was under the reign of Emperor Domitian. Emperor Domitian was one of those emperors, like so many of them, that were just inbred and went nutty. They began to think, <laughs> began to think that he was a god. And he demanded that everybody in the empire begin to 
honor him as such. So there's a certain intersection in Ephesus that John is an old man and he's walking where there's a statue of Emperor Domitian. And uh, the proper thing to do is to go up to it and bow to it and say a prayer, kiss it or whatever. The very least you could do and maybe get away with it was to bow your head in deference. Just kind of give a little bow of the head. They might let you off with that. So at least you, you acknowledged it. John, the obnoxious, defiant old man, he is known as the apostle of love. One of the most loving men we have a record of in the Bible besides Jesus himself. And yet, he can't keep this old man down. And he sees, and there's soldiers standing right there. He looks, I mean, I'm sure he made a point of looking at the, at the statue like, yeah, I see it. And he just kept walking. He's arrested on the spot. They sentence him to death. They had a particularly cruel way of killing people at that time. One of those ways was um, that they would literally boil you in oil. If you've ever deep fried something, you know what happens when you boil meat in oil. The more you boil it, the more the meat and the skin loosens off the bones. This is what would happen to a person being boiled in oil. And they would drop a meat hook down and lift up your remains after you were long dead. When they stuck John into the boiling oil, when they sent the meat hook down, our sources tell us that old man John came riding the meat hook up out of the oil. They said, we shouldn't try to kill this guy again. Why? Could he have gone? I mean, other, other apostles had been, all of his friends had, died, had been murdered at this point. He wasn't done. He had one big letter to write. Well, they get him out. They say, okay, we'll send him to a rock where nobody can hear from him. It's God-forsaken prison island. In this prison island of Patmos where it was a, it was a labor camp and, and it was nothing but rock and, and salt water. It was just a terrible place. In fact, tradition tells us that where he was staying was under the temple, this little shrine to one of their goddesses. But under that shrine is where he met Jesus. And he wrote one of the greatest, he had one of the greatest visions that anybody's ever had. And wrote it down. The revelation of Jesus Christ. I say all that to say this. You're going to have your critics. But they can't stop you from doing what God sent you to do. John had a mission left. He finished it. Paul had a mission. He finished it. Peter had a mission. He finished it. No matter how much people hate you, no matter how much they come against you, decide right now who you'd rather please. Now be loving. Be kind. The fruit of the Spirit is full of goodness, patience, gentleness. Don't get into that argumentative, I'm going to fight you back pose. Instead, let the Holy Spirit give you the words to say at the right time. And I believe miracles are going to follow you around. You won't just have the words you'll have the power to back it up. The critics will be shut up. Doesn't mean they'll start liking you. They might still threaten you. But who would you rather please? Peter said, whether it's right for me to listen to you or to listen to God, you be the judge. But we can't stop talking about what we've seen and heard. How real is that to you? We can't stop talking 
but what we've seen and heard. Well, you might lose your job. I can't stop talking about what I've seen and heard. Well, you might lose your friends, but I can't. You might lose your family. They might stop inviting you for Christmas and Thanksgiving, but I can't stop talking about what I've seen and heard because I'd rather please him than I please, please these people. If they don't like me for what I say, they must not have been real friends to start with. And if they threaten me, I love them back. I love them right back. Jesus said, Never take your own revenge. Actually, he said it through Paul. Never take your own revenge. Let God do the judging. And he says, don't repay evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. Amen. Don't be afraid of your critics. Love them as Jesus loved them, but expect that the Holy Spirit will give you the words and the signs to back up what you're preaching. Let's stand up today. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we honor you. Father, we ask that you would become bigger in us, that your voice would matter more than the voice of everyone else. Your opinion would matter more than the opinion of everyone else. That we would seek and find our pleasure in pleasing you more than in pleasing people. Lord, that our goal in life would be to make you proud. To hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. To know that we are walking in a manner that pleases God. We know that we've already, you find us pleasing simply because of what Jesus did for us. We know that. But we also know there's a, there's a walk that pleases you. There's a life that pleases you. There's words that please you. It's our desire to honor you above everyone else. Father, I've got to be honest. We're honest with you. There's times where people, because they're in our face, because we can see them and hear them, where their voice seems a lot louder than yours. I'm asking you right now that your voice will become the voice we hear and value and seek to hear. For those that are in the room tonight and say, but I'm afraid. For those that are here in the room tonight and they say, I'm nervous, I'm shy, I just want people to like me. I ask that you give them strength, Lord, that they would come to a point of decision that honoring you means more than the honor of men. That your applause means more than the applause of people. That you would give them courage and boldness and great faith in you, in Jesus' name. We give you glory and honor. And we thank you for all that you've done for us. Lord, If you did no more miracles after this, we'd have more than enough to talk about. But we know that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. There'll yet be signs and wonders. There'll yet be miracles. We have more than enough to speak of. We thank you, Lord, that you are continuing to confirm your word in every way possible. We commit to speaking it in Jesus' name. Amen.